Good evening, everyone. Nice to be back here again. See some of my old friends and new faces also. Hari Bhakti has introduced me very well with flattering words. And um, I'll try not to disappoint her tonight, any of you. But I should warn you from the onset that you are 50% responsible for whatever happens here. So. <laughs> so. And I think before we start, after such a gracious introduction, I will take the opportunity to introduce a couple of my other students who are here who will accompany me tonight and have uh, led the kirtan here thus far. My student Gurunishta, my personal assistant, Gurunishta from Finland. He lives with me in in California and pretty much wherever else I go these days, he's also living with me. And um, then he'll play the harmonium tonight and chant with us. And then my uh, disciple who's been with me much longer than Gurunishta, many, many years, Achutananda, from Central America. He lives here in Portland, actually. So he plays the drum and accompanies with the chanting also when we feel the spirit for that. So I'm going to speak a little bit, speak from Bhagavad Gita. And if we feel the urge in the context of the discussion to sing something, we'll do that as well. And the subject tonight I thought I would speak on is compassion. I don't know if it's one of the cardinal virtues according to the cardinals, but it's a big virtue. I know in the, in the East, uh, I, I know that the Christians are compassionate too, but um, it's mentioned in the Gita, compassion, in a couple of places actually. It's mentioned in the fifth chapter, and it's mentioned in the sixth chapter. So most of you must be familiar with Bhagavad Gita, perhaps not entirely, but Bhagavad Gita is a very famous text, probably the most famous of the Hindu texts, and and texts on yoga as well. Patanjali's Yoga Sutras are famous, well-known. There's a dissertation there upon yoga, Ashtanga Yoga. But the Gita speaks about different uh, types of yoga. Hmm? It also speaks about Ashtanga Yoga in the sixth chapter. Uh, it speaks about Gyan Yoga, Karma Yoga, Nishkam Karma Yoga, and ultimately about Bhakti Yoga. This is the Bhakti shop, so that works well. Uh, <laughs> with uh, the real emphasis of the Gita, which is bhakti. It speaks about different types of yoga with a view to speak about the virtues of bhakti directly and indirectly. By comparison, for example, it showcases other types of yoga and their, the methodology involved in, in, in those disciplines and the fruits, the results of them. And as I say, it's uh, it, uh, spoken by Krishna, the Gita, He's the, considered to be the perfect object of devotion. 
we'll get into that as we go on, hopefully a little bit. And so the perfect object of devotion likes devotion. So this is his, you know, favorite kind of yoga, so to speak. And so it's that's what's really highlighted in the Gita. And and the topic of uh, compassion comes up, as I say, in the fifth chapter and in the sixth chapter. And I'll cite uh, the verse in the sixth chapter. Let me let me let me sing it, and and I'll read it to you, and then we'll go from there. Krishna says, "Atmopamyena." Sarvatra samam pashyati arjuna sukhamba yadivadukam sayogi paramo mataha. Krishna says the yogi who measures the pain and pleasure of others as if it were his own, O Arjun, is considered to be the best of all. So I've mentioned Krishna, I should mention Arjun. Arjun is the, the student of of Krishna. He's a warrior, as it turns out. And uh, he's being taught about yoga, about bhakti, about love. Good lesson for a warrior. Um, the context is a battlefield, and a battle is about to take place in the Gita, and so a dissertation on on love before the war. Wise love it is, in fact, yogic love. So, compassion is mentioned here. And I want to speak about it on three levels. I want to speak about it in terms of compassion in the world, compassion in the context of the world, worldly compassion. Compassion in the context of, of yoga, of yoga samadhi and then briefly a higher idea still that I'm kind of giving a gradation here if you will yoga in aesthetic rapture which is the culmination of of bhakti kind of beyond samadhi if you will it's a kind of samadhi but I'll uh Speak about that a little bit. It's a little more esoteric. So, start at the beginning, and um, that's probably where we're mostly familiar with the idea of compassion. Actually, President Clinton spoke this verse when he addressed an assembly in South Africa many years ago. He cited this verse from the Bhagavad Gita. I think he was giving an address on with uh, regards to the AIDS problem in Africa. And so we have an example there from the president of uh, applying this verse to what I would call worldly compassion. And again, this is the kind of compassion we probably think about most when the subject comes up. There are many causes in the world. There are many people who are less well-off than ourselves. And as the Gita says here, to the, it, 
kind of says in this text that to the extent that we have some experience of, for example, a pain of others, we can empathize with it. And similarly, um, it goes the other direction too. The verse says, well, the yogi feels the pain of others as if it were his or her own and the happiness, the joy of others similarly. So he, he or she, the yogi, has a, a, a context of personal experience. And so we, in general, even outside the context of yoga, have a lot of personal experience. And it's obvious that when someone is suffering, for example, from something that we've already experienced, it's easier to be empathetic for them. We can go there because we have been there. Hmm? We can go there in a way that will be uh, helpful to them, if, if, if it means nothing else other than listening to them, hmm? giving them an ear. Hmm? Right? So we all have experience of this, and it's, it's nice when we can do that. It feels good for us, perhaps, even more than for those whom we lend an ear to. Hmm? And this is an important point in general. A very, I want to talk about this in, in a way that that uh, yoga and our spiritual lives uh, has a universal application. How it is uh, something really spiritual life that is not foreign to us in a sense. It's it's really learning, but it's learning about our own experience, looking at it more closely if you will. Hmm. What I'm saying here in this regard is that, for example, there is a kind of a universal truth that to give is to receive. We use the term sometimes. It's, it's uh, universally accepted, I guess, that giving is better than taking. Even thieves call for some kind of Honesty after, you know, for dividing the loot, and uh, that's a kind of a somewhat of a giving, you know, let's divide it evenly. <laughs> or you may find a big mafia person or something who's very, very popular amongst in his neighborhood or her neighborhood, while the police are after them and they're the most wanted person on the planet. Hmm? Bin Laden was recently, recently passed away. And um, a lot of people liked him, and I bet he was nice to some people too. Hmm? Right? He had a lot of kids. <laughs> I know that. Um, and so, even the baddest person, if you will, has got some goodness, and they accept this, they embrace this kind of a principle that to give and to help others and so forth is, um, is better than taking. It feels better. Hmm. Um, so I guess what I want to say is that in yoga we, we take these kind of ideas and we play them out and what is, what is the full ramification of them where do they end up if we really apply this principle for example that, that giving is the receiving hmm. I like to say that life moves in a kind of a largely in a non- rational way, but I could say rational, I suppose, only in as much as it's reasonable because of our experience to say 
that when we give, we get. You follow me? Because it doesn't kind of mathematically play out. That if we give, we would, it would appear that we would have less if we looked at it just from an empirical, well, or kind of rational point of view. But our experience speaks otherwise. And therefore we think that's a reasonable statement. Experience speaks loudly to all of us. I guess that's the ultimate evidence. And yoga seeks to give us more than a belief, but experience. While the Bible is often, or Western spiritual tradition is often talked about in terms of belief, the Gita speaks not as really much about belief as it does about being, rather than believing about being. So again, when we speak about yoga and we speak about spiritual life from the wisdom traditions of the East, Bhagavad Gita representing the bhakti tradition largely and the yoga tradition at large, These texts and teachers and so forth, they're really speaking to us about something we already know, but just playing out the ramifications of that, how far that goes, where that leads us ultimately, if we were to really embrace that um, idea. The idea here we're talking about is, is giving, is, is kindness, if you will, compassion. So we all know about it, we all have it, to some extent, I really want to say that it's it's what what is human in us. Compassion. According to the yoga tradition, we are not evolving in a sense as souls or atmas, particles of consciousness. In one sense, but in another sense, we are. What I mean by that is that we're, from the yoga tradition, we're a unit of consciousness and we are different from matter, like oil is different from water. And so they go together, but they're really separate. You know, if, you, if you spill oil on the water, then they may flow together, but you can scrape the oil off. It never mixes, really. So we never really mix, in a sense, with matter. But we get mixed up with it. Yeah. <laughs> We get confused and we think we're, we're, we're matter or we, we, we think or we feel that there are constraints, material constraints, that nature imposes constraints upon us and then we have to conform to them. In human life we feel that and we feel otherwise. We feel like we should be able to rise above those constraints. I mean, that's what humans are doing, isn't it? They're trying to rise above the apparent constraints of nature in one way or another. Yoga is one way to do that. It's a very gentle way to do that. Hmm? And um, there's a more popular way <laughs> that um, to do that through, for example, scientific facts in the hands of technology without a spiritual worldview with a view that, well, for example, that we are matter and so the, the goal of life, the purpose of life is to fulfill our material needs and make them as easily fulfilled as possible and to have and to acquire as much as is possible because it's thought that by getting, by taking, 
that we gain, that we grow. That by, we, we're feeling some lacking and we think, by adding something on, I'll become more complete. This is, of course, the materialistic way of looking at things. Hmm? This is a taking way. And it's not very friendly to nature, as we know. And there, so there, there are long-term, far-reaching implications that, uh, that arise from such a taking, especially when the taking is armed, uh, the capacity to take. We are humans, and so we are different from the less complex forms of life, like animal life. And it is often said the difference is that we have intelligence, we have the reasoning power. We are said to be a rational animal. But reason in the hands of a beast is not a good idea. Hmm? Reason is really meant to take us, to help us move away from bestiality, from, from animality, from the call of the wild, and to be tame. Hmm? And to be tame, then we're, we're moving in a direction of being kinder. Hmm? Yoga is a technology for that, really. A very systematic method for arriving at not just tameness and politeness, and, uh, but kindness and, and love to the extreme. Mm. Here in human life, we, again, I say we have, this, we have these two pulls. Right? We pull in the direction of, of nature's call and pull in the direction that we could rise above the confines of nature, that, that would appear to be the constraints of nature. And again, two ways to go about that. We can try to rise above nature by changing the nature of nature. Hmm? This is a phrase that Ralph Nader liked to cite. They're trying to change the nature of nature. That's a problem. Hmm? Uh, it's, it's really a, 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 a kind of a playing out of uh, our godhood in a sense. I like to think that if there's anything in this world that most resembles God, what would it be? Any suggestion? You know the answer, so you're, you're cheating. But yes, go ahead. Us, she says, us. That's pretty blasphemous. I don't, I don't know. You know you're, we are God. I mean, it's one way of looking at it. I think that, yes, that's true. It's true, but it needs to be qualified. Hmm? Because in what way are we most like God? Well, the way is that we're, 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 we're consciousness, according to the yoga tradition. And even according to any tradition, that's what we are. At least in neuroscience or philosophy of mind, we are thought to think that's what we are. And we are taught in most circles of those schools, but that's not really what you are. That's just a trick of your brain. There are lights are on, but nobody's really home there. Hmm? This is what we call materialism, naturalism, physicalism, and boredom. Uh, and no meaning, nothing to find out, no mystery. The mysteries can all be solved. There are no why questions. There are only how questions. How questions 
are really the questions of the less complex forms of life. How to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, how to defend myself. Why does it arise there? Why am I? Oh, that's the problem. This is a big burden. Why? So we are burdened by the why question. Hmm? Less complex forms of life or not, but some people in human dress, they like to tell us there should be no why questions. No quality questions. You understand? Because spirituality is really meant to deal with those types of questions. Quality questions. Feeling questions. Questions like, well, why I feel the way I feel. There's, doesn't, there's nothing in the brain that we can figure out that tells us why we feel the way we feel about something or why we feel that we feel. That I'm a feeler. What makes me feel that I'm a feeler? That I, <laughs> we can't, they haven't been able to trace that out yet and they never will. Mm -hmm. Because the feeler is categorically and substantially different than that which is felt, if you will. Consciousness is the feeler. Hmm? Matter is what is felt. We are the experiencer. Matter is which, that which is experienced. This is the yoga theory. I know it's, it's not popular in the material context and, and people are very committed to materialism and for good reasons. Bad reasons, but some good reasons also. Because by looking at the world from a materialistic perspective through the lens, for example, of science, we, we find out certain things about how nature works and then we can do things with that that do make our lives easier, more comfortable. Um, there's some scope for that. We all do it on some level. The question is, is there a limit where we go beyond our limits and we in the name of creating a better system to protect ourselves, for example, we threaten ourselves and our planet. In an effort to make food more readily available, we end up eating only money. Hmm? Something that has no nutritional value, but it, it sells. And it's, it's quick and it's cheap. And, hmm? So these are all difficult questions hmm? for human society. Hmm? And there's I want to say a good reason why people think educated people materialistically. They can't find consciousness. They can find things about matter that by understanding them and working with them they get results that are practical. It puts food on the table, it, it, it makes life, it, it, medicine, very valuable. Kind of, it has its, its place. There's a problem now, of course, with antibiotics, if you didn't know. It's kind of like the same thing. It's kind of like the Roundup. You know what Roundup is, right? It's a weed killer. <laughs> it's a weed maker, too. That no, that no, they haven't got a poison to kill yet. And so similarly with antibiotics, there's a big problem with that these days. So again, that balance, you know, how, you know, to what extent we can work with nature and improve upon nature and, and there and where we reach a line where we, we cross over in the name of improving on nature we end up changing the nature of nature which is so complex and super I mean extraordinary that, uh, to, that we know so little about it really to tamper with it here could be a huge problem somewhere else and you're all familiar with these ideas. 
So the idea anyway that what I'm talking about at the moment, that we are God or we're most like God more than anything else, what I mean by that, what Hari Bhakti means by that is that we are consciousness, not matter. Hmm? We're the experiencer, not the experienced. This is a different idea than materialism, than naturalism, than physicalism, and there's some science to it. Yoga is the science. Yoga is the effort to isolate consciousness from matter. You understand what I mean? We're a unit of experiencing capacity. We enter into the world through our senses. We touch things. We, we hear sounds. We see forms. We smell aromas. Messages kind of come to the mind. And we make decisions about those. I like this. I don't like that. This is good. This is bad. This is happy. This is sad. And we live in a world of happies and sads and goods and bads and that's our not-so-sovereign domain of the mind. In other words, your happiness may not be mine. Your heat, hot, may be my cold, so there's problems here. We, uh, we're at odds with one another to one extent or another. But yoga, then, is about going within, looking within rather than without. Again, it's not about acquiring and the thought that I'll become more and more complete and more ultimately happy by taking, but rather by letting go, which is a form of giving, right? If I'm a taker and I stop taking, that's noble. That's kind of an abstract giving, not taking. But we go further hmm, in yoga than stopping from taking, especially in the bhakti tradition. But in general, the idea is that yoga is about not taking, let's call it that. Hmm? Not taking, that's the beginning, letting go. If we really study letting go, detachment, if we really study it carefully, we see that's oh, really the first stage in loving and actually getting closer to people and things and understanding them for what they are. I mean, if you understand a thing, you can actually get closer to it than if you misunderstand it, if you're too close to it and you're attached to it. That's what close means. Attached. You're too attached, you can't see it for what it is. You're not objective about it. Yoga means to take a step backwards and be a little objective about the world. Hmm? And to explore that idea, that theory, that there's something called consciousness and that's what I am. I'm a unit of consciousness. I'm not matter. That's why I feel in human life that I shouldn't be constrained by matter. I'm different from matter. Hmm? I have constraints. That tells me that I'm consciousness, but, but, you see what I'm saying? I'm su different from matter. I'm superior to matter. Would matter matter if we didn't know about it, if there was nobody to know about it? There was nobody to care about it. Hmm? The, the carer, the knower, the experiencer gives meaning to the, that which is experienced. That unto itself, without an experiencer, has no meaning. Hmm? So in that sense, we as consciousness are infinitely more valuable, if you will. If there's matter, value to matter, it's because we lend ourselves to matter and give it meaning. 
And consciousness has the capacity to lend itself to matter, to extend itself into matter and identify with matter. But it can become, that can become problematic. Why? Because we are consciousness, but we are a very small unit of consciousness. So what in this world most resembles God? Well, it's not matter. It's consciousness. Material forms are here today and gone tomorrow. The sun will burn out. What then? Consciousness endures. This is the idea. So we're a unit of consciousness. God is the fire that we're the spark of. God is the sun, if you will, that we're the ray of. That's the idea. So we're most like God in this world. Matter isn't like God. It's different. Hmm? Let's say material shapes and forms and so forth. Hmm? We're most like God, but we're also different in that what? We tend to be overwhelmed by matter, nonetheless. It's like the fellow who turns on the TV and then the TV takes over his life. It happens, right? It's a problem. You've got to go tap him on the shoulder and say, you know, there's other things to do. You know, come on, get away from there. The TV would have no meaning if the viewer didn't turn on the set, but the set can take over the viewer's life. It's possible. We find ourselves overtaken by matter. And, and, and sometimes we give up that noble feeling, that high feeling that comes in human life that says, I should be able to do anything. It's not just an American idea. You know, the, <laughs> this is a consciousness idea. This is consciousness feeling itself in human life. The evolution, if you will, of consciousness is the, is the removal of the identification with matter, the lightening of the constraints of matter upon it. There's consciousness in all forms of life. That's what life is. I mean, I got really nice cows at my ashrams, but, you know, I just hug them and stuff. I, I don't really speak the Bhagavad Gita to them too much. You know, that's the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, I guess, so no problem. But, um, but their situation is that they're troubled by the need to eat and sleep and mate and defend to a point that they can't stop to think too much philosophically. Hmm? Our burden, if you will, under the influence of matter in human life is lightened to some extent and therefore this why question, again this is a, this is a question of consciousness, it's a, it's a, it's a feeling question, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a subjective question, understand me? Consciousness is a subjective aspect we have an objective aspect of our material being and a subjective one. There's, there's the world, there's the things, and then there's me. Hmm? This subjective side becomes really like gray, doesn't it? It becomes like, wow, where are we? It's like you can't like just control it. Hmm? That's good. Hmm? Love can't be controlled. That's good. Hmm? Maya, you know the Sanskrit word Maya? You might have heard it, it's a popular word. It means, in one sense, it means to measure. It's a tendency that we have to measure, to control things. The idea is to bring it within our grasp. You can't do that. That means, that's why Maya means that which is not. <laughs> you can't do that. 
You can't control nature. You can't really change the nature of nature. Nature will change you, like it or not. We should conform with nature to an extent. This is the yogic idea. We conform with nature to an extent. We understand ourselves theoretically to be different from nature, from matter, but we learn to participate in nature nonetheless in the yogic context so that we we rise above nature in the context of participating in her. We find that it means to say that nature has a soul and it's us. That's interesting. Nature has a soul and it's us. Rather than divorcing humanity because of its thinking capacity from the rest of nature, which was done in, in human history a few hundred years ago, and it's part of the problem that we have today in the world. Hmm? That, that the environmental crisis, for example. In the yoga tradition, we, don't div- we understand we are different from matter, but we also understand that the nature of nature and, and how we're, we're born, so to speak, from the womb of nature. We're really not born, but nonetheless, the combination of these two things, the subjective and the objective, consciousness, and our experiencer and the experience is what makes up the world. Hmm? And human life is, is, when, is when like this self, I'm just speaking kind of metaphorically, is born. The soul of nature is born. Nature starts to think about itself. Wow. I mean, it's like, that's where we live in human time. It's incredible. Hmm? And yoga is meant to help us do that, help us to come to a conclusion about that. By helping, by affording us, a, 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 giving us a methodology to experience ourselves as being independent of matter, how free could you possibly be? Hmm? You can try to rise above nature by, you know, seeding the clouds so there's no drought through technology and science and you know these kind of methods and and feed more people and, and try to keep everybody alive, freeze them. You know, <laughs> and it goes on. Isn't it? This is this is materialism. This is, this is what we try to do. Nature is, doesn't respond well to that. It's, it's, there are complications that come with that. There's another way to live forever. Hmm? That's what yoga is about. Hmm? It's a technology, as I said, to separate consciousness from matter. We go within rather than going out. We look within to the self. There's a and the method for that. You know, you close your eyes, right? You sit in a quiet place, and you sit rather than running around, busy, busy. You know, don't just they say, do something, sit there. Hmm? Rather than don't just sit there, do something. Hmm? Which is what your parents, my parents, told me. Things have changed, so <laughs> we're growing. Uh, with good teachers, it helps. So, by going within, we, you know, to an extent, we are isolating ourselves, theoretically, we, ourselves, our unit of consciousness from matter. And for all intents and purposes, we, we, we do, from many people's perspective, like I live in an ashram, right? And so people go, You live there all the time? You know, my God. And, you know, you wear the same robes every day. Well, 
not the exact same ones, you know, I have a couple sets, but yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> keep them clean and all that, but they're pretty much the same, yeah. Um, and you know, you don't do this and you don't do that and you don't have this and you don't want that and God, what kind of life is that? They, you know, some people, th- I'm, I'm giving extremes, but some people think like that. It's frightening to them, that idea. How could you possibly live without that? Hmm? That's all you do? You just sit there? Yeah. That's it. You know, a little more than that, but <laughs> something going on in there. But um, what I'm saying is that it would appear to them that, uh, that, that we're living independently of matter and things that matter. Hmm? And you, know, you take it further and further. You could have, for example, a yogi living in a cave and just breathing and so forth. And so, obviously, as long as you're still in the body. Uh, 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 there's a term, if you will, of karma. That's kind of like the sentence, and the body's the cell. There's a term in there that you have to endure, and there's a way to terminate the term, so to speak. But while the term's going on, to one extent or another, even the jivan mukta, hmm, who's liberated in this life, in the body, is still the karma, the parabdha, the karma is still playing itself out. He or she's witnessing that, and so forth. So. We don't entirely separate them. And of course, if you come and kill the yogi, where is he, see? There's no consciousness. I mean, of course, you don't have eyes to see. But what I'm saying to you is that to a large extent, yoga is kind of scientific in terms of a methodology in that it seeks to separate consciousness from matter. It theorizes consciousness is different from matter. We're going to separate it, and we're going to show you that when we do that, you don't become less. You become more. You become bigger. This compassion is about becoming bigger, isn't it? It's, it's, it's about identifying beyond your own self. It's analyzing yourself and then looking around and seeing, whoa, I felt like that, she feels like that, it doesn't feel good. Hmm? So I can be bigger then by giving her an ear. If, 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 if that's all, or whatever else I might be able to do. I could feed hungry people. There's a lot of them. Hmm? President Clinton, as I say, used the verse to speak about the AIDS crisis and how you know we should be compassionate for people, and this is a big problem, and so forth. There are tons of problems. There's a world of problems. Hmm? And that is a big problem, because... Worldly compassion is noble, it's important, it's good, but it's really a shadow, shadow of actual compassion, the full face of compassion, which is yogic compassion. If we pass through the shadow of compassion, worldly compassion, we come to actual compassion. We come compassion is is implies a kind of knowledge as it's spoken about here in the Gita. Knowledge of my own experience affords me compassion when I see others experiencing the same thing. Hmm? It's a kind of knowing. It's a kind of wise love, if you will. Compassion, I want to speak about here, it's just like the beginning of love. Hmm? Interesting. But it's, a, it's, it's wise love, as it's spoken about here. Again, it's, what, what greater 
knowledge is there than experience. You know, you can give theory to people and so forth, but they're going to go with their experience. A lot of times they say, right, Swami, but. I agree, but I feel like this. I'm going there. I understand that. Of course, yoga is meant to give us experience, a different experience. We don't have to go there. We can go within. But again, I want to say compassion is a wise kind of love. It's based on some kind of kind of knowing. And so when we exercise ourselves compassionately in a worldly context, we're exercising a, a wise kind of love and we find ourselves growing. We feel bigger. Other people point to us too and say, he's big. Hmm? You know, he gave. Uh, you know, She sacrificed. These are the people that leave really an indelible mark upon the world. Hmm? That mark will never go away. Hmm? Well, because why? What is, it, what is it really doing? It's really, even in a worldly sense, which is only a, the shadow of real compassion, the shadow of wise love, it speaks so loudly to us. It speaks about how big we could be, how evolved we could be. Hmm? The idea that, that by kindness we become more capable of surviving. Hmm? In other words, however bad it gets, and there are lots of problems in the world, and you won't be able to solve all of them, neither you'll be able to solve one of them completely. You please think about that. Let's take one. Hunger. You cannot solve hunger. By a shadow of compassion, it's not possible. It's noble to, to do that, to feed hungry people. But you can never stop hunger by feeding people. Right? I mean, it just takes a few hours and you're hungry again. Hmm? And if you don't get hungry, it's a problem. Because <laughs> you need to eat. So hunger is not going to go away. Hmm? Should we then... That's okay, that's profound, I mean, in a sense. That's a yogic perspective. The yogic perspective we're moving towards here with regard to compassion is to say, there are lots of problems in the world. I tried this. When I was a young man at 20 years old, I wanted, this was a long time ago, I wanted to join the Peace Corps. I thought, that's a thing to do. Then I met my guru and I thought, well, taking it to another level here, what peace is. Hmm? You understand me? So, as we move in the yoga direction, we realize, my God, there are all kinds of problems. I spend my whole life trying to solve this one problem or that problem, and, and, and it'll never be solved. So, I, wanna, I still want to help, but I'm, now I've found a more comprehensive way to help, which, interestingly enough, ostensibly looks selfish. Swami just sitting there, that's all, you know. And all these problems in the world, you know. Yeah, it's a big talk and everything, but people are hungry. People are dying of AIDS. People are, there's an earthquake in Japan. Talk about compassion. Why don't you go there and, and help the people? Hmm? You could do that. But me personally, my own personal experience is I get a full audience wherever I go to talk about these things. Some people are needing nourishment on another level. Hmm? Some people are some people are needing 
the kind of a spiritual nourishment that this kind of sanghas afford that's meant to take us to a higher form of compassion, to the full face of compassion, to the yogic sense of compassion, which it's mystical. So, I mean, compassion itself, as I said at the beginning, it's a form of love, right? It's a preliminary form of love. It's a wise form of love. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because, again, you give and you get. You would think that by giving you wouldn't get. You'd have less. By taking you will get more. But our experience is that by giving we get more. So love doesn't move life doesn't move necessarily in a rational way. It doesn't have to make sense. Hmm? So our own experience you know, with regard to worldly compassion, we're telling people, I'm getting more by giving. And the other guy's thinking, I don't think so. You know, I'm going to go out and, you know, get, and I'm going to earn more, and I'm going to... They don't understand it. Similarly, it's possible that someone can be absorbed in worldly compassion and not understand the move towards yogic compassion, towards the full face of compassion, towards making a comprehensive solution to the problem on a grassroots level, starting with you. You got a problem. You and I, all of us. We've got a problem. Hmm? And it's all the problems in the world put together. And one more that's for everybody, but people tend not to think about it or to hide it, put flowers on it. It's called death. Right? They make those nice places with the cemeteries and you know all those flowers. And, you know, it happens to everybody, right? The problem is, in other words, we want an enduring life and we want enduring happiness, but our identification with matter, which causes us to think I'm a Portlander or I'm a Californian or I'm an American or a man or a woman, these are all senses of identity that will not pass the test of time. Hmm? And yoga seeks to tell us there's, an, there's a real you that endures beyond all these things. Hmm? You have invested yourself in matter since a time forever that we can't sort out. And the karmic implications of that are immense, overwhelming. Hmm? Now you have a human life, and if you have sadhu sangha, also, you've got two things. That's all you need. Human life and sadhu sangha. Sadhu sangha means association with sadhus, with saintly persons to discuss these type of things. You can make a solution to the problem for you. And you are part of the whole thing. If one person makes a solution and becomes a perfect yogi, hmm, then that person sets a perfect example how to solve all the problems. How to go to, if you will, the disease and treat it rather than the symptom. Hunger, pestilence, uh, disease, um, racism, bigotry, they're all problems. Hmm? They're all symptoms of one problem. The problem is I've identified myself erroneously with matter and I'm actually, with, I'm actually consciousness. Yoga is to sort that out. Hmm? And, 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 and while, I mean, I don't have a lot of time personally to feed people or give lectures about AIDS problems and other problems. I don't have a lot of time for that. This is a full-time engagement for me. Hmm? 
doesn't mean I don't have any sympathy for that. But there may be people, and we should talk about it for a moment, in the context of yoga that lose their sympathy for others. This is a misapplication of yoga. You can get a head full of this kind of stuff. You really think you've gone somewhere without going anywhere. Hmm? This kind of this kind of discussions, I'll tell you frankly, the objective here is to is to help you all, all of us, to change. Hmm? It's not just a it's not an entertainment here. We go places, we gather knowledge. Let's say university. You go to university to get knowledge. What for? To have some knowledge in your agenda or in your file so that you can pursue your agenda. These kind of circles are different. The kind of knowledge we find in the Bhagavad Gita is different because what does it say to us? It says there's an agenda that's not yours. The Gita has an agenda. Godhead has an agenda and you're on it. It's a different kind of knowledge. We hear this long enough, from good enough sources, we start to think, oh goodness, I had an agenda and it's not a very good agenda actually, it's like pretty shallow. And it's, it's, just, it's, been, it's, it's been demonstrated to me comprehensively that it's small. As big as I thought it was, it's small. Hmm? There's a bigger agenda and I'm on that agenda, suddenly I, my position changes. I was the subject. Now I become like an object almost. Hmm? On, on the Godhead's agenda. Hmm? But oh, the Godhead is so kind. Talk about compassion. It's so, this is the source of all compassion, all love. Hmm? So it starts to feel good. I think it's a good agenda. Because my agenda, however good it was, formed in my mind, involves taking as much as my agenda is part of my identification with matter, as much as I have to take because my material identification needs something, whereas I don't. Do you understand? Consciousness doesn't need to eat. It doesn't need to breathe. If you can live hmm, in yogic samadhi, if you can fully understand and experience what is consciousness, you won't even, you won't even, I mean, we kill by breathing. Microbes, and, you know, so this is what I'm, you can't get out of it, so to speak. As much as we've identified with matter, as much as we're, as much as we have a solution and a kind heart in that context of worldly compassion, we're still part of the problem. Now, sounds interesting, sounds a little foreboding, a little like, you know, that's pretty heavy, Swami. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I can go with you there. I've been there too. I, can't, I didn't start here, you know. I started there also. But I'm still there. <laughs> I'm still student in all of this. Students forever. Hmm? Such is the nature of the subject. But I'm saying that in the context of hearing these things, learning these things and so forth, we find examples of people who take it as just a head full of information. It sounds interesting. You can regurgitate it and you can get, become popular for it. People throw money at you and stuff. Especially if they tell you, you're doing really good. They come and pat you on the back. You're really doing great. Oh, it's great. No problems. You are enlightened. There's no problem. Hmm? These kind of 
aphorisms and so forth. This is popular. There's, there's also, you know, there's also counterfeit currency in the spiritual community. That's also an unfortunate reality. There's real goods and there's counterfeit goods. And counterfeit goods, you know, we may be a party of that ourselves to some extent. To the extent that we take information, but we don't take it with a, with a view to change ourselves. We get the information. There are things that we will say tonight, and I say we because you're inquiring minds and hearts and so forth are part of what's being said here. I mean, I, I say things whenever I sit down that I've never said before that, that I attribute to, to the audience. Hmm? So we're hearing things, and some of the things that we hear, they will hit home. You will go, yeah, that's right. But it may also mean that, that if you were to embrace that truth, it would bring about a change in your life. And change is a little scary. Growth is a little painful. Should we stop growing then? No. Well, this is about growing. Spiritual life is about, and good sadhu sangha is, we'll feel a little uncomfortable. We'll feel comfortable, but a little uncomfortable too. <laughs> That's good. We'll feel challenged a little bit. We need to grow. We need to change. Are we in ecstasy at every moment? But that's the yogic idea. It's, that's possible. Hmm? How kind will you be then if you're so full, so happy? Hmm? What will be your sorrow? Only the sorrow of others. Hmm? No sorrow for yourself. Only the sorrow for others. Hmm? A head full of this information only sometimes make the heart hard. People don't change. They get the information. Then they say things like, well, that's their karma, too bad. Hmm? I've met people like that. It's, no. One time, one of my guru bhai, a, a, a friend of mine who is my brother in God, I guess, same guru. We have the same guru. He was standing with our guru in Calcutta on a balcony of a rented building and he looked down and there was a couple of beggars there and one of the beggars had you know only one hand and they were obviously um, worthy objects of worldly compassion and so this fellow had a head full of information about yoga and spirituality and so forth and he was thinking that well that's their karma so too bad. I mean, what can I do about that? You know, that's their karma. And to have worldly compassion, that's only the shadow of real compassion, so I should move away from that, hmm? was his idea. So he said to my Guru Maharaj, he said, he said, you know, he said, Prabhupada, sometimes I feel sorry for these people. He was like saying, I admit it, I shouldn't. It's just their karma, that's the philosophy, you know, that's how, it's odd, I know it sounds odd, but anyway, my Guru Maharaj said, why only sometimes? (laughs) What's wrong with you? (laughs) Why only sometimes? So, the point being here is that if if we pass through the shadow of compassion, which is worldly compassion, to yoga compassion, it's not that we don't feel for the suffering of others, we do. But we feel and we know wisely that there is a more comprehensive way to go about t- 
tendering to the needs of others and solving the problems of life, and that is by being an example myself of not taking, hmm? which compassion is about giving, right? About not taking. Hmm? You may have to say, I don't have time to attend the peace rally because I'm doing yoga at that time. Hmm? That's my yoga time, and there should be a time for yoga. There should be a time for meditation. It should be really ongoing in a sense. It's not just our sitting, but if we sit properly, then what we get from sitting will, will inform our walking. Hmm? Where we will go and where we will not go. We'll start to use our time, think wisely. And that will be thinking how to help the people the most. Hmm? You understand what I'm saying? So uh, now, we're all worldly people to one extent or another. You should be compassionate towards people and you should help people on whatever level you feel, feel called to help them. Help. Start helping. Start giving somewhere. Hmm? But this is a yoga studio here, so we want to talk about it in a progressive way, in a higher way. I mean, not everybody can sit all the time. Hmm? Right? Um... Because why? We have desires. That's why we get up. Desires are a problem. They cause anxiety. That's what movement's about, kind of in, in one sense. So, okay, but then yoga's friendly. It's user-friendly. So you do some worldly compassion when you're up then. Hmm? If you've got to mix it up with the world and you can't you know, live on the mountaintop or whatever, not that everybody should, then mix it up in this way. Hmm? Uh, you know, to, to cultivate worldly compassion is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. But if we do it properly, hmm, in the context of a, being a yogic sadhaka, if you will, a practitioner, not a siddha, not perfect, hmm, yoga means you've got to be wise, so, you know, sometimes you've got to take a vacation from yoga, too. I'm talking about yoga as a spiritual discipline. Sometimes we meet the wall of our conditioning, our, our karma, we just can't go any further here. People say, I'll be doing yoga, but I'm not getting samadhi. Well, it doesn't come overnight, but uh, sometimes you've got to step back. Therefore, the Gita says in this very chapter, in the sixth chapter, oh, the yogi should be moderate in her eating, in her sleeping, in his recreation. Oh, there's recreation also for yoga. I mean, sometimes you, you might need to take a break from yoga in a, in a sense. Hmm? But because yoga is really about giving, you can take a break in this way by doing worldly compassion, worldly kind of giving. You understand? This, you know, the way we should have certain interests, right? Things that turn us on, that are exciting to us. Let's elevate that, what that is. That's what we're talking about here. Hmm? Compassion. It's a big thing compared to where most of us are at. We get a little of it here and there, but mostly just concerned about ourselves. And the self that we're concerned about is one that can't, it's not that worth being concerned about, really, to be honest with you. It's a world of your mind. What you think is good and bad, happy and sad, somebody else thinks just the opposite about it. Which is it? It's neither of those. Those are just perceptions gathered by the senses, determined by the mind. It's a small world. Hmm? It's a very small world. And nonetheless, we think everybody should live inside of it be comfortable, even though we're not comfortable in there. <laughs> this is un unreasonable. So, 
It's a big idea, yoga. It's a big, it's a big idea. It's a heavy idea. I don't want to scare anybody away. I want to scare myself away. But, <laughs> but, but again, the Gita says, so let's be practical about this. Let's be practical about it. Start giving. Hmm? Somehow. So, uh, you know, identify with these worldly causes of compassion. There's unlimited numbers of them. Uh, you know, down the street, some, uh, there's domestic violence and, and across the globe, there's earthquakes and so forth. But inside you, there's you. Hmm? And you've got a problem. And it's all these problems combined. They're all your problems. You've had those problems. You've been in earthquakes. And you've been diseased, and you died, and you born again, and it's going to continue. Whoever dies, the Gita says, is born. Whoever's born will die, except with the Gita, how to get out of that cycle of birth and death. End all the problems. Hmm? No earthquakes. There's another kind of earthquake. That's another thing. That is called Leela. We'll, we'll get to that, hopefully. That is a spiritual kind of earth-shattering, shaking kind of movement, not based out of necessity, out of karmic obligation. I took, therefore I owe, so off to work I go. No. A movement out of fullness, yogic fullness. One thing is to be full enough to sit and not have to move with no necessities. And another thing is, is to be so full that you get up and dance. This is Leela. Krishna's, of course, the god head of Lila. Lila Purushottam. Hmm? Purushottam. The Uttam person. The, the supreme person. Lila Purushottam. Whose activity is all Lila. It's all moving as if taking, but there's no taking involved. Hmm? So we, we move here from worldly compassion to a yoga compassion, which as I said is like to step back from the world, so to speak. To sit. And in bhakti, when that sitting becomes so full, we move again, not out of a necessity of misperception that I need something, but I need to move because I'm so full. I need to move. What, what, what I'm saying here is a very interesting thing to me. <laughs> and, and <laughs> that is, in the fifth chapter where compassion is talked about, Krishna says, Lodpate Brahmanirvanam Sarvabhuta Ratamita. He says that that one who is has compassion for all living beings, among other things, attains Nirvanam, Brahmanirvanam. Nirvana means to blow out, literally means to extinguish desire. Brahmanirvana means there's some positive context to Nirvana. There's something going on there. Hmm? There's a self in there. This is a yogic idea of nirvana. A little different from Buddhism, although not that much different. So he says, Brahmanirvanam, Labhate. One attains this Brahmanirvanam. That person attains it who has this compassion for all living beings, which means includes this like feeling for the suffering of others. Here in the sixth chapter, Krishna says, the highest yogi is one who sees the suffering of others as if it's his own. Hmm? There's many other things to yoga that have been mentioned here. Sitting, stilling the mind, con- controlling the senses, and so forth, identifying with, with experiencing Brahman, Brahma Buddha, Prasannatma, all these things are mentioned. 
At the end, he says this: What it means that that this yogi, the highest yogi, has compassion for others. It's very interesting because he's saying that yoga is about giving up the world, in a sense, worldliness, let's say. But it's not. But it's also about the one thing that makes us human: compassion. It's very human at the same time. Do you follow me? In other words, what I want to say is humanity is compassion is humanity. That's the difference between human life and less complex forms of life. It's not the difference is not reason, as people like to think. It's compassion. In other words, if you have reason as a human being, but you have no compassion, you are a very dangerous animal.、Hmm? You've got you're an animal because all you want to do is take, and you're equipped with reason how to do it in a in a very in a you know you can, I mean, who's a bigger criminal? Some guy that knocks down your door in the middle of the night, or somebody that you know. Corporately steals millions of everybody's savings, you know, by some scam or something like that. With one press of the button, you know, he puts thousands of people into into suffering. Their 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 their, their savings are gone, for example.、Hmm? So human life is like I mean, we're not like you don't have to be brutal like a tiger taking a deer. Everybody has their quota. It's not a bad thing for a tiger, but for a human being, that may be, being to be like a tiger—that's bad.、Hmm? And that means, even if you do it in in a, in a, in a white-collar way, so to speak, it's bad. It could be worse. Intelligence misused for simply taking is 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 just dwipada pasu. That means a two-legged animal, not a human being. Human being means what? Human being means we get to do something. Consciousness now we're talking about in human dress gets to give, gets to do something voluntarily. To say please, to say thank you, say no you first. This happens in human time. It doesn't happen in other forms of life. Not anywhere near the same measure. In fact, that's what makes us human. That's what I'm saying. You understand? Yes, some primates may give a little bit, and you know, and, and so forth. But human life is all about giving. That's the whole thing, the whole affair. And what is human life, according to the yoga tradition? It's consciousness coming out of its cell. It's on probation. I said this karmic is that karma is like a sentence in the body. We particular body that we have is the cell, and this human life is like you're on probation. You have the chance to like, well, try it now. You know, be nice. <laughs> Be nice. The self is a unit of being of niceness, and you're, now you're starting to think about it and think, why am I? What am I? This whole subjective side of nature starts to come to rise up, and, and we're preoccupied with it. Human life is an existential crisis in itself.、Hmm? Why am I?、Hmm? Why do I? And we might even say, why do I give when it, you know I don't get anything back? Sometimes I feel like that. I still do it. Well, there's a reason for that too. You have to learn the art of giving, how to give in the right place.、Hmm? That's a whole. That's part of yoga also, how to refine your giving. But start giving. Giving is a is a kind of knowledge in itself that will gradually refine your understanding of how to give, 
more comprehensively. We move again from worldly compassion to yogic compassion, make a comprehensive solution to all the problems. For me, yes, but I'm one person, and example speaks louder than precepts. If I change myself, I become a siddha, I become a perfect giver. It means I perfectly understand consciousness. I become completely compassionate. Then I, these are the people who do this, who I said earlier, leave an indelible mark on human society. Indelible. It will never go away. Because they have stood up and demonstrated what we could be. What, what consciousness is, ultimately. It's so big. Hmm? So big. Without any money. Jesus didn't have any money. <laughs> Chaitanya, the, the founder of our particular lineage, he lived in a room, a, 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 a stone room, about six by eight with no windows, in ecstasy at one point. And he, he, couldn't, he melted actually, and came out underneath the door. His students found him. How did he, how did he get out? They put him in there to protect himself because he was just like mad in ecstasy. This is a very... We're going to a higher level. It's very kind of like frightening. You want to be like that? Uh, huh? But, <laughs> but um, what came out of that? Such profound teaching and so forth. So at the point I'm making only, he had nothing, it appears. He lived in a little stone room, laid on the floor. He had nothing. Jesus had nothing. These, you know, the luminaries of the different traditions. Rumi wasn't a rich Sufi or anything like that. You know, he wasn't uh, like the... King Hussein or somebody over there in the oil, you know, dynasty. These people, they really leave a mark on humans. Not the people who, who have the most. They don't leave an indelible mark on human society. They themselves aren't satisfied. And everybody knows it. You know, I was recently in New York. I was invited to New York after a long time. I'm originally from that area. So I hadn't been there in about 25 years. I got an invitation. I go only where I'm invited. Not always, not always where, not all invitations. But anyway, I went. It was nice. And we were driving by, and somebody said, "There's the Trump Village." You know who Mr. Trump is? Man, has he got it? You know, he's got things. There's a whole like building after building after building, and then they said, "And inside each building." You don't have to go outside. There's trees in there. You know, the, everything, you, you don't have to leave. You know, you just have to leave to get the money to live there, to pay for the place. But otherwise, you can stay inside. It's, he's got everything. I mean, what a you know, vapid per, you know, excuse for a human being. And he wants to be the president. And I, I like him, too, on some level. You know, I you know, like everybody on some level, but you've got to keep a distance from some of them, too in order to be able to appreciate them. Hmm? <laughs> you get too close, it becomes problematic. These aren't the people who will leave an indelible mark on human society, the givers. They'll never go away. No matter how you want to philosophize against you know, religious ideology or spirituality, which is popular in Western philosophy, unhinged from books like Bhagavad Gita, revealed knowledge and so forth, I'm sorry, it will never go away because it really speaks to us human beings about all we could possibly be, how big we could be by understanding our smallness. That's cool. I mean, 
to understand how small I am, really, is to be, is, is to be how big I could be, how humble. Hmm? I'm small and insignificant. Hmm? That's wisdom. And wisdom is attractive. And then, and, and, and you think, what can I do? What can I give? How can I help? What, I teach about these kind of things. Share this kind. I'll do my part a little bit. They think, the sadhu think, it's a small thing. What can I do? But we feel it's big. These people, they leave, as I say, an indelible mark on human society. So, yogic compassion. This is what the Gita is. Here it says, Compassionate. So, this is named Clinton used it in a way to address people in Africa about AIDS, worldly compassion. There's more to it because, as I say, the text comes here in a certain place in the book, and it's talked about all the other things that are part of yoga, the self-control, the the, the steadying of the mind, and so forth. You know how flickering that is. Hmm? Yoga is meant to stop that. That's, you, you don't know. I mean, you might know, but that's like that's like. A huge relief. Stop that music, you know. To, you know, now we do the mantra. You know, maybe we chant the mantra. We do the mantra, but you know, the mantra is kind of like music, and the world is the is the music. You know, the thing has to be changed so that the world becomes just music. It's just like in the background, and the mantra is the music. Hmm? The practice becomes at first is medicine. The food is elsewhere. But we know we need to take the medicine. In time, the practice will become the food. Hmm? When ruchi comes, when taste comes, when experience comes with this, you cannot let go of that. You'll be drawn back to sit to that. Hmm? What I am, the unit of anandam, joy. And I don't mean the joy that you get from... You know, you could take it in a syringe, every kind of material happiness, and inject yourself with it. It doesn't compare, if you could quantify, to a drop of ananda, of what you are. Not a drop, not in a tiny atomic particle. Stopping the mind hmm, means stopping the senses from going outward and taking, even for a short period of time. The self has a breath of air. What you are starts to breathe. What you really are, you start to feel yourself. You think, I'm big, being small is big, it's so big. Hmm? It's an ocean. Hmm? How kind you will feel towards others that don't have that experience, full knowing that that it's them. I'm experiencing myself and they are of the same nature, everyone. They could be experiencing this. Hmm? Oh, what a world it would be! Huh? And as far as worldly compassion, well, uh, you know, it's only castles burning. Hmm? So find someone who's turning, and you will come around. It's an old song, nice song. Hmm? Even if the ca- it's only castles burning, so what? And find someone turning, turning in this direction. Hmm? Turning away from that, hmm? turning away from the world, so to speak, without, to explore the world within. Hmm? You will come around, you come around, you come back around to the world and have something really meaningful to offer. So, in bhakti tradition, 
this yoga, very nice idea of yoga. As I said, there's an object of bhakti that means here we're speaking Bhagavad Gita. Object here is Krishna, object of yoga. And uh, then there's the so we, so there. In other words, the love has to be directed somewhere. There's two it takes two to love. The two have to become one, but in a dynamic sense. We. There's still you. There's still me. But we are well. We're we. <laughs> so in bhakti, then we don't merely withdraw from the world and sit and think I am, I be, which is big. I be and I be forever. Hmm? My other identity was here today, it will be gone tomorrow, but, but my real self, it's an enduring self. I be. You can think about that for a while. And because really our life is trying to be. We're, we're struggling, we're threatened with a, with, a, with, a, with a distinct possibility of non-existence, it appears. I might not exist if I don't do this. So I'm out busy, right? We're struggling to stop that. It's futile. It's futile. And to know, I mean to know that you be. I mean, theoretically is a good start, but to know is more than theoretically. I be. This is huge. It's huge. But bhakti seeks to go further than just being and knowing that you be. Hmm? It wants to speak about, well, bhakti is about loving. So being is arrived at by stopping from taking because this taking is part of an identity that can't be maintained. It can't be. You can't be forever what you might think you are right now, materially speaking. You can't be that forever. And that is a product of taking. That's a product of the our karmic involvement. My psychology, my physical self, my psychic and my physical self, it's all a product of karma. This is yogic teaching. <laughs> it's a bubble only, an ocean. Hmm? So, and it's based on taking. So just stop taking, then you can be. That's really interesting. But in bhakti, then we don't want to be only, we want to be lovers. So I could say, I be, we all be, we are all consciousness, we're all one. The difference is all this hots and colds, happies and sads that come in your mind from taking, taking feelings, taking forms, taking sounds and saying, I like this one, I don't like that one, creating a world in your own mind uh, and an identity based on that. That's a false identity. The real identity is consciousness. We're all consciousness. We all have in common. We're all the underlying self. So there's a unity there. But bhakti seeks to find a diversity within that unity as well. Very interesting idea. A, a diversity that doesn't compromise the unity. Our material diversity compromises that unity because the material diversity is it's hot for you, it's cold for me. So... We're not together. We're not on the same page. Hmm? So we get beyond that duality created by the mind and senses. We come to a unity that underlies that we all have in common. We're consciousness. That's a huge relief, and we're all together. Hmm. 
But we pine for unity and we pine for diversity equally. And that's a fact. Hmm? Think about it. Hmm? Bhakti speaks about a unity, a kind of, I, let's call it a, like a musical unity. Is a musical unity one note? Everybody just plays one note? Could be, oh, one note, it's unity. But when we chant, for example, Hare Krishna, that's a different thing. Hmm? It's not different entirely from Om, but it's a, it's a development of the idea. It's like in music, using use the example of music as I am, it's like many notes, but they're all harmonious. They're not like one note and one key, one note and another key, and uh, nobody's on the same score. That's like material life. So to move away from that, let's go to Om. Let's just make one sound, okay? We all get together on that. And that sound is uh, like what we sound like. Om. We sound like that. It sounds kind of peaceful. Hmm? Sounds like it could endure. It kind of sounds like the, the drone of life that's just there. It's just Om. But in, in Bhakti, for example, when we chant Govinda Jaya Jaya, Gopala Jaya Jaya, Radha Ramana Hari Govinda Jaya Jaya. Hmm? When we sing like this, then we, we are talking about within the context of understanding that we're consciousness, there are unity, there's a diversity. Now an individuality starts to develop on the basis of consciousness, not on the basis of matter. It's identifying with matter. This is now we move not only away from karma taking to not taking, but to the full face of, of loving. Hmm? Om is one thing. Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabihari. That is another thing. Jaya Radha Madhava Jai Kunjabihari. The difference between Om then and Hare Krishna. Well, you see the difference, yeah. You've got to learn a few melodies, but... Um, this we go then briefly to the end. Um, I won't keep it too much longer. I said I would speak a little bit about compassion in a worldly sense, and yogic compassion, and then yogic and aesthetic rapture. Aesthetic rapture is a, is a term. It's, a, it's kind of a translation of a, of a term in the sacred text. The term is rasa, rasa, rasa. There's a saying that dharma jignasu, brahma jignasa, rasa jignasu. So, dharma jignasu means to inquire about dharma, what's the right thing to do in the world. And then, having done that, the idea is that one comes to inquire about Brahman. What am I that's different from the world? I did what we were supposed to do in the world, and that's supposed to promote an understanding, ultimately, of what I am, the fact that I'm not of the world. Hmm? 
I'm consciousness, not matter. So having been a dharmic person, one gets insight into the fact that, or let's say, having been a dharmic human, one gets insight into the fact that I'm not a human. I'm more than human. I'm in a human dress right now, but I'm something that transcends the limits of humanity. So from worldliness, if you will, and right worldliness, and let's say worldly compassion to yogic sense of self and the compassion that arises from that, from dharma, jignas, jignasu, jigna, to inquire, inquiring about what's right to be done, inquiring about what I am, ultimately. And rasa jignasu means what I, what, I, what I can be in the context of being. I'll give you an idea to explain this further. You could be, but not know that you be. You, could, you can't be a knower, though, and not be. Right? You could exist, there could be an existence that was unaware of itself, but there can't be an, an aware or a cognizant without existence. Sat is being, chit is knowing. Now you could be, and you could know that you be, but you didn't have to necessarily be in ecstasy or be a lover. Hmm? But if you're a lover, then you have to be, then you have to know. Hmm? So, anandam. Ananda means love, really, ecstasy, joy. It means love. Hmm? This is the aspect of the Godhead that bhakti focuses on. Gyan, the yoga of knowledge, focuses on being. Ashtanga yoga actually focuses on knowing. Controlling every aspect of the body. Control is a kind of knowing and so forth. The object of Ashtanga Yoga is, is, is the Paramatma, Vaikuntam, as Krishna Namacharya has explained. Hmm? Guru of Patabi Joyce, for example, and Iyengar, the most famous yogins in the Western world. Vaikuntam, it's about knowing. It's, it's, it's being and knowing. And Bhakti, then, is about being, knowing, and loving, the full measure of loving. So much so, be so much absorbed in loving that you could forget about knowing and being. And that's what Krishna means. Krishna means the Godhead, if you will, transcendence. In such a condition of ecstasy and love hmm, that transcendence itself, ultimate reality, let's call it, forgets about itself, forgets that it's ultimate reality. It's a kind of a divine ignorance. Just like when you're in, in love, you, you kind of become ignorant also, right? Hmm? You don't care about whatever. I mean, if you live in the hollow of a tree with somebody you love, it's, it's okay, right? If the house is burning down, you know, whatever, we're in love. You can forget about being. Love has that power. And knowing, what's a kind of ignorance? Love is a kind of ignorance also. Hmm? It's pretty philosophical, I know, but it's a kind of, you know, you know, to give an example, if I love you, then I'm kind of, I might have, I might say, oh, my daughter is so beautiful. She's blind, but she has lotus eyes. You understand? Mother says, oh, my, my daughter is, I'll name her Padmalochan. means lotus eyes. Good neighbors go, she's blind. I don't know if that's a you know, good name, but she's blinded by love, so she's, oh, she sees love turns faults into 
ornaments, right? It's a kind of ignorance in that sense, but what kind of ignorance is that? You understand? Hmm? Objectively speaking, you've just called a fault an ornament. That's wrong. <laughs> That's ignorance. Her eyes are not like lotuses. They don't even open. Hmm? But what kind of ignorance is that love that causes the mother, for example, in this example, to say, what's better, that objective truth or that ignorance of love that turns the fault into an ornament? So in the Godhead, when the Godhead is concentrated on ecstasy, this is what Krishna means, sandranatma. It's concentrated anandam. The form of Krishna is said to be concentrated ananda. Ananda, joy, love, in the concentrated, I mean, it takes a shape, not a material shape, it's here today and gone tomorrow, but a shape constituted not of matter, but of consciousness. After all, let's say you have an idea. It's a great idea. How good is it if you, if you don't put it on canvas and concretize it, that other people can take advantage of it and so forth? So Krishna is like the form of ecstasy personified. This is the idea, the experience of the mystics. Hmm? And the ecstasy component, if you will, of the absolute, which is being, sat, knowing, chit, and loving, ananda. Hmm? When, the, when the ananda is the, is the concentrated focus, loving, which is what bhakti is about, so Krishna is the object, therefore, of bhakti, loving, hmm? then what happens? The absolute, the ultimate reality, absorbed in the loving aspect of its, of its constitution, if you will, the ecstasy aspect of its constitution, tends to forget about its being and its knowledge. That means this Krishna form of Godhead is a form of the absolute in which the Godhead comes very close to us. Follow my reasoning, because if God is thinking, I am God, how close can he get to us? And we're kind of like God, but we're really, really small, right? And we fall into the predicament that we find ourselves, illusion and so forth. So if, like I say, I've given an example before, if I was God and I told you and you believe me, you might say, oh my God, and you might just like move back a little bit, right? So if I display my Godhood, it's going to create some distance. You're going to like me from a distance, like om, om, and om. And what else can I say? Oh, no. oh, it's like, wow. I'm, you know, like, there I am. That's, that's, that's like, you know, God. I'm close. I mean, we're like one, but like, wow. You know, we're, well, there's also me, too. And, and it's a dynamic unit. Anyway, so Krishna means that moment, if you will, that emotional moment in the life of, of the reality, we don't see it in bhakti as a static reality. We see it as moving, being, Becoming prem is the word for love in Sanskrit, in, in bhakti. Prem is full and ever-growing, ever-increasing. In some schools of yoga thought, we, we think we're trying to become, we should just be. Stop becoming and be. But in bhakti, we stop that becoming of material life, trying to become hmm, what we're not. We be, but in the context of of becoming in another direction. Hmm? Because love implies some kind of movement, right? Like, let's say, 
I've given an example before that humans move because they can't, they, they can't rest until they find love. That resonates, right? You can't rest until we find love. What happens when you find love? Do you rest? No way, right? Those relationships are really <laughs> tough. Uh, you know. So I know about that too. So uh, there's another kind of movement, but you don't get off. It's like, whoa, you know, it's like the Ferris wheel or something. You don't get off. It makes you sick sometimes, but you don't get off. You just keep going. <laughs> so there's a something to, so we look in the Bhakti tradition like this, that spiritual life is exciting, it's dynamic, it's peaceful, and then it ends the, the struggle of material existence, but it grows from there in Bhakti. By concentrating on the loving kind of constituent of reality, it, it be, it knows, it loves. Hmm? It's being, it's knowing, it's loving. By concentrating on that aspect and giving in such a way, how you give? Like, let's say, like a young girl gives to a young boy that she's fallen in love with. This is the classic example. Krishna's right, he's got these milkmaidens and all this, the ideas. Let's say, um, you know, I'm a young man and you're a young girl, you fall in love with me. And then so it doesn't make any sense because we're too young and, you know, I don't have a good job or whatever, and there's a thousand and eight reasons why. This is not going to work. And you want to tell her that, good luck, right? Whatever you tell her is only going to serve to drive that on further. Hmm? Whatever you put in the path, in the way of her path, she's just going to jump on that to go that much further. So this bhakti tradition we come from in where this chanting, for example, of Hare Krishna, Govinda, Jaya Jaya, and so forth, it's like this. It's sometimes described as, depicted metaphorically, like a young girl's love for a young boy. It's like fresh and ever fresh. And it's not supposed to happen, so it, that means it, it's just more intense. In other words, there's opposition to it, it just makes it more intense. Hmm? This kind of love for God is what the chanting, this Hare Krishna, for example, is about. And it concentrates on this loving constituent of the Absolute, the Ananda constituent. The, the, the bliss constituent. And so what happens is that the love itself, the bhakti is love, it tends, it draws from ultimate reality a shape, if you will, a form that constitutes the embodiment of ecstasy and loving. And so because it is the embodiment of loving to an extreme, to use an example, in a romantic sense, that's the extreme, right? It brings the, the absolute very close to the human society because it, in order for it to happen, the absolute has to forget about its being and its knowing to some extent. Krishna is the Godhead in existential crisis. That's pretty interesting. As I said earlier, as human beings, we are an existential crisis. That's what we are. We're wondering, why am I? What am I? We're talking about, in bhakti, the Godhead's existential crisis. Now that would make some yogis get off of their seats and go, what, you know, the Godhead has an existential crisis? I'm trying to settle mine by meditating on God. And you're telling me God's having an existential crisis. So what does all this mean? It means that if the measure of our love, of our bhakti for the Godhead is, reaches such a pitch hmm, that in order for it to be reciprocated, Krishna says in the Gita, however people approach me, I reciprocate accordingly. Hmm? 
But there, we find in the sequel to the Gita, the Bhagavatam, there's a kind of love depicted by these milkmaidens hmm, that, that their love exceeds Krishna's capacity, the Godhead's capacity to reciprocate. So he puts himself in their hands, so to speak. In other words, Krishna looks just like, well, you say he's God, but I mean just like a, a blue guy, you know, with some cows playing on a flute. I know there's a lot of philosophy behind it, but whatever. I mean, it's like, what does that mean? It means that, again, if we're to get very close to God, like you could get to your lover, the Godhead would have to become almost meet us on finite terms. You understand? If the finite is to get close to the infinite, the infinite has to take a finite-like appearance in order for that to happen. Otherwise, we're going to kind of have to stand back because we're going to say, oh my God, there's the infinite. So when the love reaches such a pitch that I want closeness, such a union to God that it's like compared between a union between lovers and lover and beloved, hmm? that nothing can check, no good reason can stop it, the the passion, if you will, for spirituality reaches such a pitch that I don't want to stand in reverence of God. I want to like embrace the, the ultimate reality like a friend, like a parent even, or, even, even, or like a lover. Hmm? Then that causes, if you will, in eternity, the absolute to take a, a form that makes that intimacy possible. That's what Krishna means. That's what these yogis are experiencing. Hmm? Krishna's like human-like. He's got, you know, problems. He loves Radha. And he wonders, she loves me, she loves me not. He's not supposed to be loving Radha. That's part of the whole Leela. Hmm? He goes to his friend Subal and says, I don't know, does she love me? He's like picking clover. She loves me, she loves me not. And Subal says, yes, Radhe, Radhe, Jai Radhe. She loves you, don't worry about it. Hmm? This is... Leela. Leela means divine play. We're talking about the absolute is, you know, if God steals, what do we call that? He owns everything. So that's play. Hmm? So in play, Leela is play. Krishna means, Krishna does nothing but play. So you think, well, God should be all powerful. He's only playing, but it takes power to play, doesn't it? You've got to have money in the bank to, to take a vacation. You have to have power. Hmm? So the God had depicted as only playing, that depiction is the, is the full, the heart of divinity. That's where you can give your heart. Hmm? Shiva is a manifestation of God, and Buddha is a manifestation, Christ is a manifestation. You look at them and you see, they all represent some aspect of the Absolute. Krishna represents the heart, the romantic heart. Hmm? It re- he represents the capacity, the extent, the measure to which bhakti can cause the ultimate reality to come down to, to itself. In other words, there are forms of yoga that are about ascending to transcendence. Bhakti is about causing transcendence to descend to, <laughs> to this side. It's very. I'll give you another example. Let's say you pray to, to God for eternity. I want eternal life. I want to live forever in eternity. Okay, we'll get to take it. Or let's say, I want things. Okay, take them. Hmm? Let's say, I want to stand in front of you and just 
Om, I mean, just the beatific vision. I want to passively adore you forever. Okay, that's a little more interesting. Somebody wanted eternal life, I threw him that, you know. Somebody else wanted things, I gave him a whole world. Hmm? Made him a Brahma, gave him four heads, made him a creator, you know. Okay, no problem. Somebody else wants it like, just, I know I'm attractive. I'm the source of everything. So somebody wants to passively adore me forever in meditation. That's pretty, that's more interesting. Now somebody else says, I'm not even interested in that. I want you. I mean, I just want to, I want to love you like, like I love my friend that intimately. Like a parent might love their child. Like a lover loves a beloved. He thinks, that's pretty interesting. I mean, you're interested in me, not what I might have. See, this is bhakti. We're not interested in mukti. Mukti means liberation. Hmm? We're interested in, in intimate union with the Absolute. So this is very compelling, you can imagine. So it's a type of yoga that's not about ascending by technique. I mean, what is this chanting? What's the technique? Is it, the, is it you have to learn the harmonium? Do you have to sing on key? I mean, we don't. Oh, you can see that. I mean, half the time we do, and half the time we don't. Hmm? Uh, it's not, so it's not about technique. It's only about giving your heart. Once my Guru Maharaj was asked, what about yoga? He said, yoga, we just cry for Krishna, that's all. That's our yoga, that's all. Hmm? That's a big yoga. Just crying, that, like chanting Krishna is like a crying. It's like opening the heart, that's all. Hmm? It's, so this is very appealing. Hmm? It causes the absolute to, to come down rather than us to climb up as close as we might. Hmm? It's, uh, so it's a descending yoga. It's about grace. The effort in bhakti, what is the effort in bhakti? To get grace. That's the whole effort. To position yourself to, to get to get grace. Hmm? So Krishna means this is interesting, but Krishna means that that the, 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 kind of like the Godhead overpowered by bhakti, love, in other words, taking precedence over the Godhead. We talked earlier; we're a very tiny, infinitesimal, you know, particle of consciousness. Godhead is like the sun; we're like the spark. But here now, in the power of bhakti is such that the situation can be reversed, practically. Hmm? If a spark comes to control the whole fire, hmm? such is the power of love, you see. We could try to conquer the world, like I said earlier when we began, by technology and changing the nature of nature. We could try to conquer God by doing away with him and deciding that he doesn't exist and so forth. ENG, Radha and Krishna, those are the two. We could, we could, we could try like that. We, you know, hmm? Or we could try to control in another way, by love. What is the power of love? It turns faults into ornaments, you see. It's a kind of illusion. Hmm? Bhakti seeks to take us into enlightened illusionment. This is the idea. Hmm? We're still finite. The absolute is still the absolute, it's big. But from the perspective within bhakti, the absolute becomes small, like us. Hmm? That's why you see in art, Krishna is depicted as wrestling with his friends and being defeated. Hmm? His mother has compassion for him. 
Krishna has a mother. I mean, a guy once told me, I offered him a book called Srimad Bhagavatam. It's all about these things. He said, I don't need that. I said, well, how, that's cool. How come? He said, because in our, my religious tradition, we know about the social life of God. I said, wow, that's interesting. I think, imagine that. You know about the, God has a social